This is our brother, Kenneth Daria from Reformation Fellowship Church. Good morning, PBC. So good to be with you guys again. I bring greetings from your brothers and sisters at Reformation Christian Fellowship. They love you dearly and, uh, and are delighted to get me out of there. <laughs> One of our elder candidates is sharing uh, back home at RCF this morning, and uh, I'll delight to catch up on that sermon later. But this morning... It is an unspeakable joy to be with you all. Rare in life, rare in the life of a pastor does he have friends in the ministry that he doesn't really jostle, compete, and bicker with, but does ministry arm in arm gladly with deep and sincere joy. That's the kind of relationship I have with your pastor. And he is not just a beloved partner in the gospel, but maybe one of my best friends in the whole wide world. You're being shepherded well, PBC. I'm terrified to try <laughs> to get in this pulpit this morning. So it's a joy to be with you. Let's turn, as you might have already done so, to Matthew chapter 13. Let me pray just one more time asking for help from the Lord. Lord, you alone have inspired these words. And when these words are read and understood rightly, then your people are hearing your very voice. Your personal instruction to them. Give your beloved people ears to hear your word. Please help me preach your word faithfully so that they hear you and not some knucklehead. That's my heart's desire. That's our heart's desire. And we pray now in Christ's name. Well, you're continuing your series through Matthew's Gospel, and I delight to help you do that. This morning, we come to chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, and we come to a structural anomaly. Matthew's Gospel has many structural elements. People outline it several different ways. One way in which people outline Matthew's Gospel is by tracking the five main teaching segments of Matthew's Gospel, the five discourses of Matthew's Gospel. In your journey through Matthew's Gospel so far, you've already heard two. One of them you spent a long time in, the Sermon on the Mount. That was number one. The second discourse that you've already heard began in chapter 10, where Jesus called and commissioned his 12 apostles, and he prepared them for the persecution that was going to come. He prepared Christians 
for the persecution that faces each and every one of us who stand for Christ and proclaim Christ's gospel. This week we come to chapter 13 and we begin the third discourse. I called this discourse, maybe the other preachers who will come after me will call it something else. I hope you remember my title. I call this discourse the kingdom parables. The kingdom parables. Beginning in chapter 13, you'll see there are seven parables that are all teaching us something about the kingdom of God. And Matthew's gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. You remember back in chapter 4, we heard that from this time forward, he began proclaiming everywhere the gospel of the kingdom. Here he's teaching us about the kingdom in parables. Our subject specifically this morning, even though it's 23 verses, we're only talking about one of those seven parables. The parable of the sower. Our outline for this text, I'll give it to you now and then we'll walk through it together, is this. The first nine verses, we're going to see the parable of the sower proper. The parable of the sower itself. There's going to be very little comment because the last set of verses is the explanation of that parable. In the middle, in verses 10 through 17, Jesus is approached by his disciples and and they ask him the question, why are you using parables? Why are you teaching this way? And we hear Jesus' very important answer to that question. In verses 10 through 17, we have the purpose of the parables. Our third and final section is going to be this, the parable of the sower explained. Jesus will explain the parable of the sower to his people, and that's in verses 18 through 23. That's our outline. So let's dive in and see, first of all, the parable of the sower. Read one more time with me, verses 1 through 3. It says this. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. Pause. At the end of chapter 12, our Lord was teaching from a house. Hopefully you remember that. Most likely it was Andrew's house in Capernaum. Some of his family members came to the house hoping to gain a private audience with him. But here in chapter 13, our Lord has left Andrew's house and he has resumed his public ministry. A large crowd has gathered for this seaside instruction. Further, Matthew tells us that this instruction is unlike the more straightforward teaching given during the Sermon on the Mount. He told them straight up, this is how it is. This is how you ought to live. This is your righteousness. And if it doesn't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you don't know anything about what it means to be saved. Very straightforward, didactic teaching. But now here in chapter 13, parables. 
Jesus, a shift in his presentation model. The first of these parables is as follows, verses 4 through 9. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now we won't comment on the parable just yet since Jesus gives his explanation in verses 18 through 23. Instead, we're going to move right on into the second part of our text to note the disciples' reaction to Jesus' parables and Jesus' teaching about the purpose of parables. That's our second section of text. Read again verse 10 with me. It says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Here we see that the disciples are curious, maybe also confused. They don't understand why he has temporarily exchanged his straightforward teaching style for what they perceive to be vague and confusing style. Parables. They're looking around at the crowds and perhaps they're seeing confused faces and they're asking Jesus, why would you choose this teaching method? Don't you see Lots of people here aren't following you. They're clearly more confused than they were when you were preaching straightforward didactic sermons. So why would you choose to speak this way? Are you actively trying to confuse them? You see, the disciples' false presupposition is one that maybe many of us hold today. Their false presupposition is this, that Jesus' goal was to try to make his teaching as easy and accessible to as many as possible. They assumed that. They were wrong. In reality, Jesus is not trying to make his teaching as easy and accessible as possible to as many as possible. Jesus' goal is not to win as many as he possibly can. Just imagine the problems with that statement itself, as if Jesus couldn't win every single soul if he so desired. And the Lord makes this clear, as we saw in verse 11. He said, well, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has 
not been given. Did you hear what he said? He says the gift of faith was given to you, Christians. Ones who have been loved by the Father from before the foundation of the world. But not them, whoever them is. He said, I'm making kingdom truth clear and known to you, my disciples. But those who have hardened hearts, not even interested, I actually don't want it to be clear to them. Now he presses into that further even in verse 12, which says, where Jesus says, For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And when Christ speaks of the one who has, he refers to those who have been given the gift of faith. Why do we call faith a gift, dear ones? Well, because Paul does in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, now the, what was the immediate noun before then? Faith. This, referring to faith, is not of yourselves. It is a gift. That's what Paul teaches us in Ephesians 2. Those who have been given the gift of faith are the ones who have. And to such souls, this is just the gift of faith, that is, is just the beginning of what they will receive from the Lord. Those who have been given the gift of faith, the grace to believe in Christ, are also given, according to Ephesians 1.3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Our own text, this parable, tells us that further they will bear the fruit of righteousness abundantly. Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. You get the idea? There's no one that's in a bad spot. No Christian who has been given the gift of faith is going to say, you know, in the end, my life was really utterly fruitless. At worst, your life is 30-fold fruitful. Christians are made not only to be fruitful, but to persevere in their faith even through perilous trials. Their Knowledge and love of God increases steadily as they read their Bibles and as they pray and as they fellowship with the saints. Truly, the grace to believe in Jesus is just the beginning of many gifts given to God's people. The gift that he gave you to believe was the beginning of him giving you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about. Those who receive more, those who have more even is coming. But for the one who hasn't been given the gift of faith, for those who don't have, no blessing endures. At the end of his days, all is lost to him and hell awaits him. He may be given lots of good blessings in this lifetime, a loving family, decent job 
name whatever common grace blessing. But in the end, whatever common grace gifts that unbelieving soul received here in this lifetime, they're all taken away. And they, they vanish. And only hell awaits such a soul. So then what should we conclude? We conclude that the parables are Jesus' way of giving, of giving even more kingdom truth to his people and concealing kingdom truth from those who are not his people. Parables are functionally a judgment upon the unelect and unbelieving for their sin and unbelief. And parables are a blessing to God's elect and believing. They reveal to them the blessings that are theirs in Christ, the nature of Christ's kingdom. And if you think that's a crazy idea, just keep on reading in verses 13 through 15, which says this, this is why I speak to them in parables, because, because seeing they do not see, Hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Here Jesus expressed his reason for speaking in parables. It's so that the hard-hearted, unbelieving, unelect won't understand. That said, this is not the only reason he speaks in parables. Jesus goes on to say that while the parables are intended to conceal kingdom truth from the unbelieving, they also reveal kingdom truth to those who have been given ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe. Verses 16 and 17. But, oh, that's a sweet turn. But blessed are your eyes. For they see in your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Here Jesus tells them how blessed they are. Blessed by the grace of God. Charles Spurgeon helpfully paraphrases our Lord's word as he says, You, under the gospel, are made to know what the greatest and best of men under the law could not discover. Thus, while these parables blind the eyes of some, others are made to see kingdom truths in them. I'll summarize it this way. 
The Reformation Heritage Study Bible offers uh, an apt and helpful summary. It says this, The parables reveal the truths of the kingdom to the children of the kingdom, but conceal these same truths from others as divine judgment upon them. That's the parables. I wonder for how many of us that's new. How many of you are like me and that you grew up thinking that parables were Jesus' way of just trying to make plain, simple truths known to plain, simple people, as many of them as possible? Anyone else grow up thinking that? You can't read this text and conclude that, can you? From here, understanding now the purpose of the parables, Jesus moves back into the parable of the sower itself, and he explains it. Beginning in verse 18, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. In the final verses of our passage, the Lord's exposition of this parable shows us what I think we all know intuitively, but let's just make it clear just in case it's not. It shows us that the seed sown is what? The gospel. Everybody was tracking with that, right? Good, good. I knew you had a good pastor. And the seed sown being the gospel and the four different kinds of soil, they represent four distinct ways that a soul might respond to the gospel. The sower is us. Every single member, every single citizen of his kingdom. We're the ones proclaiming the gospel. Thus, these four soils represent four distinct ways that people in this world that we really will encounter as we proclaim the gospel, four ways that they will respond to our gospel proclamation. Four distinct ways they'll respond to our gospel. And we need to understand what kinds of responses we'll get. Why? Because we need to be able to discern between true, regenerate faith responses and those that are only superficial and false. We need to be able to understand when somebody seems to be so excited about Christ the minute I tell them about Christ. But then as soon as stuff gets hard, they say, never mind, forget the whole thing. I don't want them. I don't like it. I changed my mind. We need to know, what is that? Did that guy lose his salvation? Or was he never saved? Was it never good soil? parable of the sower teaches us. It helps us understand and discern the various responses to the gospel. And of course, the first response we come to is this. Number one, 
There are four responses. The first one is this. Number one, many will be unable to understand the gospel. Unable to understand the gospel. Read verse 19 again with me. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. There are two questions that arise out of this first response to the gospel. The first question is this. Why didn't they understand it? There are really only three options. And in my estimation, someone will come up to me and say, you know, there's a fourth. Okay, good. But in my estimation, there's really only three responses to why it is that he didn't understand it. One, he's stupid. Right? I mean, some people will say that. But then you're confronted with this reality. Jesus compares regenerate faith with the faith of a child. You have to ask yourself this question. Is the spirit's work of regeneration in the soul actually dependent on the level of intellect of the person being preached to? Let me put it a different way. Can a Down syndrome person be saved because they lack some measure of intellectual capacity or prowess? I would argue no. In fact, years ago in my previous church, I spent years proclaiming the gospel to a dear man named Paul Schaefer. No, not the band player for David Letterman. But he had the same name. His name was Paul Schaefer. He came from a Buddhist family. And he showed up at our church every single day. And he spent the vast majority of the day with me in the office, hanging out and listening. And he would ask me questions. And he would try to tell me things that he thought might be true about what it is that I think and believe. He had a very simple mind. And as day in and day out, I explained the gospel to him. One day, he came up to me and he said, Pastor Kinney, Today, he always would say this, and he would stick out his finger as if, like, you know, holding my attention or something. Today, I'm in Jesus. And I said, Paul, what do you mean? And he says, I believe, I believe what you have said. And I said, what did I say? He said, that Jesus is my Savior. I was dirty not skin, sin. You see what he's saying? But he makes me clean when he died for me. He had the intellect of a two and a half year old. But dear ones, the spirit of God granted him faith so that he was born again and believed. So I think option one that they didn't believe because they're stupid, has to be taken off the table, does it not? Option number two. Option number two. Why didn't they believe? 
They didn't believe because they can't believe. They didn't believe because they can't believe. And here's what I mean. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says that the gospel is folly to those who are perishing. Paul says that people who don't believe the word of the cross don't believe the word of the cross because it is spiritually discerned. Nobody can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. John 6.44 says nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it Cannot. So option two says that their sin has rendered them incapable of understanding the gospel on their own. Unless God does a supernatural work upon them and in their heart, they cannot believe the gospel. They cannot understand it really. Option number three, option number three is that they can, they have this ability. They're not so ravished by sin that they can't understand and believe the gospel. They can. They just won't. There are three options. The verses listed in option two preclude option three from possibility. How many times does Jesus have to say things like, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him? And some say, well, draw doesn't mean drag. Draw might mean woo. Draw might mean entice. Draw might mean persuade. The same word, I would argue, back to that response was used when Peter drew his sword from his scabbard and hacked off Malchus's ear in John's gospel. You remember the story, right? Dear ones, did Peter look down at his sword and woo it out of its scabbard? Did he persuade it to come out with gentle pleadings? He grabbed hold of that thing and pulled with powerful and effectual force. The same way God did when he pulled my soul out of its death bound, hell-bound direction and set me on his righteous way. So the reason that they don't believe, they don't understand, is because they can't. It's option two. They can't. They're unable to understand the gospel. The second question then that comes up as we read this verse is this. What does it mean then that Satan came and snatched away the seed? See, the person who can't understand the gospel, that seed can't take real root in their soul. And so Satan is absolutely free to distract 
divert and deceive so that the seed is gone and has no effect on that soul. And that's what happens. Years ago at my previous church, as I mentioned to you earlier, we had a food pantry ministry. Do you guys have a food pantry ministry? Oh, we had one. And uh, we don't have one now at Reformation Christian Fellowship. Uh, But we did have one at my old church, and people would come in, and they would get food, and before we would feed their face, we would feed their soul, we would do a gospel proclamation. So a lady came in one day, and she had like a totem pole-looking stick with her, with all these totems carved on it, and feathers, and jangly bells, and whatnot. And I didn't know what that is, and so I asked her, and she told me she was Native American, and I said, ah, And I said, does that have religious significance to you? And she says, it does. These are my gods. And I said, ah. I said, do you know where you are? You're in a Christian church. And she said, yes. And I said, what if the book that we believe to be true says that those aren't gods at all? Would you be willing to hear me explain to you the truth about the one true and living God? She said, sure, a little less than totally confident that she wanted to hear my explanation. But we get into the gospel and we go to 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And I said, will you today turn away from those false gods who cannot save you from the wrath of God that is due your sin and turn to him who will love you and redeem you? At that point, she lifted up that stick in my face and started shouting in a way that I can only compare to the sound that Xena Warrior Princess makes. You know, the thing. And she's shaking the stick in my face. And here you have someone who can't understand the gospel and the enemy Satan snatching the seed. The enemy was so ready to distract, deceive, and divert Anything to avoid being under the sound of the gospel. That lady left hastily. She didn't even grab her bag of groceries. The enemy was at work. Dear ones, we're going to face soil like this. People who can't understand the gospel. And sometimes our temptation as evangelists is to get very discouraged about that reality. Sometimes the temptation that we have as evangelists is to assume that the reason that they don't understand the gospel is not because they're stupid, but we are. Clearly, the reason they're not believing is because I'm terrible at this. Has anybody ever felt that way? Clearly the reason that they're not understanding is because I'm just confusing in my speech. I'm not saying it right. I'm not as winsome as Hobson is. Oh, he can talk. If only he were here, then they would believe. We think that sometimes, don't we? But the reason they're not believing is because they cannot understand the gospel. No one can come to the Father Unless at that moment the Father is drawing them to the Son. So be encouraged, dear ones. 
Don't let that thought creep in saying, well, the reason people aren't understanding and believing is because you're a failure, Christian. And rest knowing, no, that's just not yet the moment that God has chosen to awaken their soul to the good news that you have to share with them. Keep sowing. Keep throwing that seed. Gospel response number two. Gospel response number two. Some soil represents people who don't believe the gospel or won't believe and persevere in the gospel because they're unwilling to suffer. We see this in verses 20 and 21. Read those again with me. It says this. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Looking at this passage and understanding, okay, here we're talking about people who are unwilling to suffer for the gospel. The first question we have to answer is this. Does this initial joyful reception mean that a soul has been surely, truly converted? Is this true saving faith that is then lost and abandoned? And the Bible's answer to this question is an emphatic no. It is certainly not. For Jesus makes it plain that he is speaking of people who have no root in himself. The gospel never took hold and dug in and became truly their everlasting hope. He's speaking of people who are excited about the gospel for a little while because maybe it sounds good for certain carnal reasons. Maybe they want to attain some benefit for themselves or be a part of this attractive community. But as soon as life gets hard and it's not attractive to be a Christian to them anymore, as soon as persecution comes, they decide the gospel isn't worth it. They decide Jesus isn't worth it. Dear ones, we've got to know people who walk away from Jesus are people who have never truly come to faith in Jesus. You need to know that as evangelists. You're out there sharing the gospel with your neighbor. And if they go, yeah, great, sign me up. And three weeks later, because somebody doesn't like their Christianity, they're tapped out you might be left wondering, did they lose their salvation? God forbid the thought, dear one. For no one can be snatched out of Christ's mighty hand. No one can be snatched out of God the Father's hand. Nothing in all creation can separate one of God's redeemed from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. No. Dear ones, people who walk away are people who have never truly come. Hebrews 3.14 ensures us saying, For we have come to share in Christ 
if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, you're really a Christian if you stay a Christian. Similarly, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, describing people who have left the faith, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, Christians, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. We need to understand sometimes that's the response to our gospel proclamation. True saving faith is evidenced by a persevering faith to the end. And somebody walking away from Jesus does not mean that you, evangelist, failed to proclaim Jesus potently enough. The third kind of soil, the third kind of response to the gospel that we see in our text is this. There are some who are unwilling to lose all for the sake of the gospel. Verse 22 shows us this. It says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Dear ones, when preaching the gospel, we will see this unfruitful response in souls who are interested in the benefits of salvation. They're interested in being a part of this cool community, the support that it gets, and all in all, all the various ways that it might be beneficial to be a Christian. But they're totally uninterested in the cost. What do I mean by cost? Rest assured, dear ones, I'm not saying that we have to earn our salvation or pay for it in some way. It really is a free gift of God's grace. We say with Paul, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Yes and amen. But the free gift of grace proves costly. In Matthew 10, Jesus tells us that the free gift of salvation brings persecution and animosity between us and believing family members. And we see even that this rich young ruler once approached Jesus and he asked Jesus, teacher, rabbi, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, that's easy. Just do everything that the law says perfectly. Never sin and you're good, right? And he says, well, which laws exactly? Jesus is like, you know, and he starts rattling them off. And exasperated, he says, I've been doing that since I was a child. What else do I need? Now, Jesus doesn't bother going, you've been doing that since a child, huh? Hmm. He doesn't bother arguing. He shows him that he hasn't really been doing it since he was a child. You've been doing it since a child. So then it's not anything in the world then for me to say to you, sell everything that you have and follow me and you're good. That's fine, right? Did he do it? Now we know he walked away sad because he had a lot of stuff and he didn't want to lose it. Sometimes we'll discover, we'll discover whether or not Jesus is the preeminent treasure of the heart of the people that we've evangelized or not when it gets costly, Christianity. 
when we start telling them, let's give sacrificially to missions. Let's give of our time and our energy to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's give of our time and energy in prayer. And then all of a sudden you see someone go, nah, not worth it. I'd rather have my stuff. I'm out. That's a kind of soil that we're going to encounter as we proclaim the gospel. And dear ones, you must be prepared for this response as you proclaim the gospel. You must be ready for many sorrowful souls, just like the rich young man, to walk away from the gospel because they aren't interested in potentially losing everything that they might gain Christ, like Paul said in Philippians. Why, you ask? Why will people make this foolish choice? Because they have not yet been given eyes to see that Jesus is truly a greater treasure. He is the hidden pearl, the pearl of great price we're going to see later on in Matthew 13. And until they see that, until they're given eyes to see that, they will consider the treasures of the world greater than Christ, the truest and greatest of all treasures. There's a fourth and final response to the gospel. And that is those who are saved and sanctified by the gospel. We see this in our final verse, verse 23. It says, for as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold. In another, sixty And in another, 30. Dear ones, our Lord speaks encouraging words to us. He speaks of good soil. Notice this is the only time that he calls the soil good. This is the only believing response. This is the only truly regenerate response. The good soil is those who believe truly the gospel. And so we ask, what makes these soils so fertile and receptive? Is it that they're, again, we only have a couple of options. Is it that they're just wonderful people? Better than most. Is it that they're so intelligent and they have a vast intellectual prowess for understanding complex notions like the gospel? We've already worked through this, we know. Saving faith is a gift of God's grace and God's grace alone. They understand and believe their fertile soil because the Lord took that hard, stony heart of theirs, took it out, this is Ezekiel 36, and gave them a soft heart of flesh that couldn't help but believe the gospel. That's why. And you know what, dear ones? That is what we're dependent on. And I hope this is freeing in this way. Because when you proclaim the gospel, sometimes there is this fear or pressure or anxiety that you've got to get... You've got to be just so persuasive. And you've got to make those apologetic arguments just so convincing, so compelling, that somehow their eternal destiny is in some way hanging on you in your presentation. 
everything that Scripture says about how a soul gets saved says that the actual conversion process is the work of God and God alone. Your job is to throw seed on the ground. Now that doesn't sound too complicated, does it? To simply proclaim the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? That's it. Maybe there's someone here and you're hearing the seed of the gospel for the first time with fresh ears. And you're thinking, man, tell me more about this Jesus who lived a sinless life for me, died a sinner's death on my behalf, was crucified. My sins were placed upon him that I might not have to bear the wrath. His righteousness is counted as mine simply by grace through faith. My new life can be found in him. I believe that. I believe that. Look, if that's you, won't you talk to one of the members here at Pocosin Baptist Church? They want to tell you about how you can follow Jesus Christ and become a member here at this church. But to you Christians, I say, there's great encouragement here. There's great encouragement here. Because those who are truly regenerate are also, according to our text, abundantly fruitful. Aren't you glad there's not a fourth category of a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold, and Bob? <laughs> we love Bob, but he didn't do much. And then he died. Right? Can we be honest, though? A lot of us think that we're Bob. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, that's Hobson. That's Kenny. That's Nathan. That's our gospel partners. That's the preachers, not me. I hardly know anyone who I've made an impact in their life. And that might be true. You might live your entire life and make just the smallest impact on just the smallest number of people. But you, dear one, have no idea how God will use that over the span of time and generations upon generations on the hundreds, if not thousands of people who will come to faith eventually because one guy that you didn't think was very significant, maybe one of your own children, you taught the gospel to, and they shared the gospel with three other people who shared the gospel with their children, who shared the gospel with five other people and their children, and by the end of it, on the day of glory, you'll see a tree of connectivity that blows your mind. You'll see, hallelujah, I shared the gospel with my son, and 7,000 people got saved? Wow, God, you did amazing things. You made me hundredfold fruitful, and I did not see that coming. Dear ones, there aren't bobs in the kingdom. There are only those who are 160, 30-fold. Be encouraged. Sow the seed. God does big things with your little faithfulness. To the glory of his name. Can we pray?
Father in heaven, we thank you for this practical instruction on the different kinds of souls that we're going to encounter. We thank you for this encouragement that though there are more unbelieving responses to the gospel, there are many who will believe. And those who you bring to saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ will be abundantly fruitful. Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. May that so thrill us and encourage us that we are made faithful to sow the simple seed of the gospel indiscriminately. Throwing it everywhere. There isn't any verse in this text that says, make sure to avoid that kind of soil. It presupposes we're tossing seed everywhere. Make us faithful, Lord. Save souls. Save fruitful souls and encourage and delight our hearts in your gracious work. We pray in Christ's name. You may stand.
benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 12 and 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Amen.